Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Hebrew, the Project Zion series that reduces Old Testament bitterness. I think we started with cold brew Hebrew, reducing Old Testament bitterness. And we do that through explanation, exploration, and through experiencing the Hebrew scripture text. So our guides through the Old Testament for Hebrew scriptures are Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith. And I'm your host, Karen Peter. In today's episode, we are beginning our discussion of the prophets, specifically today, Joshua and the books of Joshua and Judges and the entry into Canaan, or what I grew up understanding as the promised land. So I read the entire book of Joshua aloud to my spouse on a road trip through Arkansas, which says a lot. (laughs) And when I began prepping for this episode, I realized my entire memory of the book of Joshua was they killed all the inhabitants. They took all the booty. They went home. That's what stuck with me out of this. Mm -hmm. So a rereading of it was important. So I'm going to turn it over to Charmaine and Tony and see where they take us with the prophets, Joshua and Judges. Well, first of all, this is a segment of the prophets that we could spend a lot of time on uh, for some of those reasons that you've already stated, Karen. The what is the what are the main themes, especially in Joshua, and um, the whole idea of what what is scripture and how to, what what is it for so anyhow hopefully we'll touch on things that are of interest to you and to anyone else who <laughs> is uh is listening in here so well, i think if we're honest and anybody's listened to this series so far i'm always interested in euphemisms for sexual activity so if you can get to that in the beginning we're good there <laughs> Oh, I have to think about that one. All right. So first of all, we always want to do this at the beginning, and that's the reminder of how we'll be approaching Scripture. We're seeing Scripture as stories from the past of people trying to to capture, explain, and pass on their experience with God, which, of course, means that it's shaped by their culture and their time and their language. What what kind of language do they have for the divine, for interaction with the divine? So if something in this story touches you or connects with you, great. Use it to enrich your own journey with God. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. But perhaps you can learn a bit about their situation and times or articulate why their story is difficult for you or what part Um, in yourself may need to seek um, understanding and healing with God by what gets stirred. So, but it's all good. Uh, We're glad that you're here to participate with us. This is a a good time to remind ourselves too, that the Bible is not a book. Hmm. It's a library. And if you walk into a library, you're going to find dozens and dozens, hundreds of titles of different genres of literature from different time periods with different values represented by the authors. It's no different in the Bible. 
the, the problem is that we've bound it up in a nice <laughs> compact package, which makes us think wrongly that this is a volume. It's not. It's mm -hmm. a collection of volumes. And so we have to we have to change our mindset coming in. We have to expect that this is going to be uneven, that there's going to be a lots of variation in terms of how God is understood and experienced about how human life is valued or not. So I think that's just helpful always for us to remember. And and it's a good place for us to ask the question is how we see God in the Iron Age different than in the Industrial Age or in the postmodern age? Um, and what are the tools we have for seeing and understanding who yeah. God is today? I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good question to keep taking back and forth with us. So we've gone from the first part of the Hebrew Scriptures. So we've gone from the... The Hebrews, um, later known as the Israelites, and we'll probably be using that term more than anything. So they're going from being slaves in Egypt with this kind of vague, foggy memory that they had some kind of a connection with a God. <laughs> and and they um, cry out to that God, and then they spend 40 years of homelessness, um, learning that this God is with them and for them. And so that's, that takes us up to the end of, of Deuteronomy. And uh, now we're into the spot where they're about to enter the promised land. And so we're Judges and Joshua, this first part of the prophets section of the Hebrew scriptures. And now it's about being planted on a piece of ground mm -hmm. so there's this new relationship happening now there's the people and there's god and there's a place and there's some complications along the way because there are other established people on that piece of land <laughs> and keeping focused on god may be harder than they thought so that's just a little bit of what they're coming into. So in terms in terms of the Hebrew Bible, this is where we are. So the first sessions we did were on the Torah. Charmaine walked us through the content of the Torah. A little. Basically. <laughs> I forgot the whole creation that was, part. That was you know. A, you know, kind of a truncated kind of <laughs> trip through the Torah. The second, the second division of the Hebrew Bible is the Nevi'im, the prophets. And so the prophets then are divided into two subsections. The former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the latter prophets, Isaiah to Malachi. And those prophets are further subdivided into to, uh, the, the big prophets. And then the, the book of the 12, that is the 12 in Christian circles, it's sometimes called the minor prophets, you know, Hosea to Malachi. But, but in the Hebrew Bible, everything from Joshua to Malachi is in the Nevi'im. And so this is our the, the first of four sessions we'll do on the Nevi'im. And then once we've done that, we'll go on to the final part of the Hebrew Bible, the Ketuvim, which are the writings. Uh, think of it as miscellaneous. <laughs> and we'll, we'll go there uh, eventually. But today we're going to spend some time in the first part of the Nevi'im, Joshua and Judges. And I have to say, Karen, I remember as an 18-year-old for the first time trying to read the book of Judges and I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> I was absolutely mortified. So I, I understand the, 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 
I'll call it the, the moral reaction that we have to Joshua and Judges. It's it's not a bad sign. It's a good sign if we have a moral reaction to these books. And well, well that's helpful to know. Yeah. We'll talk more about that <laughs> as we a little bit, little bit later. So, so uh, there's this this overview of what we're going to be talking about today is the coming into the land and. Um, we usually have one of two images, you know, either of that God made the way possible for these people to come in and take over, or we have the other image that's so disturbing of, wait, they believe God told them to go in and wipe out everybody in the town, every, you know, even the animals, you know, and so... It's pretty horrific when you start just reading page after page after page of this. Exactly. And that's sometimes the other image we have of, of Joshua. And so I'm glad you read the whole thing. And you've got some other of the pieces as well. But that's still the big disturbing thing. And I think for many of us, it's disturbing partly because we know Christians who think that that's still how God wants to work in the world. Um, they have read it literally. They have determined who those Canaanites are today, and they think it's okay to wipe them out because God told these people to do it, so why wouldn't God tell us to do that? And if we really need to name what's happening there as genocide. Um, but we also need to look more closely at, at some of those stories and and say, well, wait, did they wipe out all the cities and all the people? And all? Obviously not, because there's other stories there where they're the minority. They're not in control at all. And they're getting, you know, attracted to the gods, the Canaanite gods. And how could that be if they had done this this thing in each place and weren't being influenced by the other cultures around them. So <clears throat> we have to realize that some of these stories may be how the author of Joshua wished it had been rather than actually how it was. And, and Font does a really good job of giving us three different understandings of how um, the Israelites may have actually come into the land and what the evidence helps us with there. So the the comment that, Tony, that you made about the different genres is really helpful in this particular episode because with Joshua and Judges, a lot of people think the Bible is chronological and could just go from book and then the next book takes it from there, but that's not what's happening with mm. Joshua and Judges. And so we do get two different pictures. Right. right. There's two. These These books have very different pictures of how the people of Israel emerged in the land of Canaan. Okay. All right. And, and we have we have some serious historical issues to deal with <laughs> there too. Uh, so which we'll we'll touch on here momentarily. So yeah. Excellent. So the other things that we have is, is they're coming into the land. <clears throat> they're they're struggling with just dating Yahweh. You know, they want <clears throat> they want to date around or in some cases sleep around. Um, because that's what you do with, with the inspiration under the inspiration of some of these other fertility gods. Um, and 
and then there's this whole other piece of in, in judges in particular of being a minority, being oppressed, being ruled by you know the the city, the king of the the city that you're living near, uh, having to pay to pay taxes, um, <clears throat> and crying out to God, and God raising up a leader that <clears throat> frees you uh, from that. So, um, so this is another, another side of the story. Um, when we get to the judges of people forgetting about God, and then they're in this oppressed situation, and then they remember God, and then God raises up a leader and, and brings order to the chaos. So that's, that's another, just as we look at the big picture here of, um, some of the main themes. And so Tony's going to go deeper on some of those themes and issues that are, that we think are worth noting in these two books. But of course, there's many, there's many things there to, um, to explore. And we could spend a great deal of time doing that, but <laughs> so, but uh, it is a podcast. So it's not a sleep cast. Right. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so just some, some big picture items related to the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. First of all, these books came into the literary form. We're reading them now, of course, in translation. Sometime in the like 650 BCE down to 550 BCE, in that period straddling the end of the Judean monarchy and into the Babylonian exile, which we've talked about in, in previous podcasts. So the 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 books as we're reading them are some 600 years removed from the events, I'll call them events, that they're trying to, to talk about. And so how did they have access to those? I mean, what do I know about my family history 600 years ago? Well, actually nothing. <laughs> um, but in, in this culture, in this time, oral tradition, some written traditions, various, various ways people preserved memories They've preserved memories in various literary forms, uh, myths, folklore, um, legends, poetry, lists, lists of cities, lists of people, uh, everybody's favorite genre, genealogies. Um, <laughs> and so both the books, Book of Joshua and especially Judges, are books made up of like pieces. Charmaine came up with the image of these books being kind of like memory quilts. Where in a memory quilt, uh, you you have pieces of fabric from different parts of your life. But imagine that you'd lived 600 years, and you had pieces of fabric from some faded a little bit too. Pieces of fabric from 600 years of your life, and that's what's being sewn together in these books. And here's here's a, a result of it. It's fascinating, actually. The Book of Judges has one of the absolute oldest pieces of Hebrew text in the entire. Old Testament. That's that's the Song of Deborah in chapter five. The Hebrew is archaic. It's very ancient, and some scholars think it goes back to you know roughly the 1100 BCE. That's pretty darn close to the events. But in terms of the patchwork, the the Book of Judges has three different reasons why the Canaanites remained in the land. One reason was that. Uh, the Israelites were disobedient, and they didn't—they didn't do what Yahweh told them to do, and kill them all. Uh, 
Another reason was that Yahweh left him there on purpose to test the Israelites to see if they were faithful. And then a third reason is that Yahweh left them there to teach them how to fight because they didn't know how to fight. <laughs> so these are three incompatible reasons. And that's an example of the memory quilt. There's, I thought it was an example of a suburban dad, but that's is what that really sounds like. <laughs> so, so in other words, we, we've got these, these two, two books that are much removed from their, their original environments, their original environments they're trying to describe. They're drawing on oral traditions and some written traditions that have been passed on for centuries. And in some cases, the, the tradition is, is folklorish. So uh, definitely the Samson stories have the have all the feel of folklores and folklore and legends about uh, a heroic figure from the past. Uh, we can we can debate how heroic Samson was a little later if we need to. But <laughs> so what do we have here? Then Joshua, the book of Joshua is about the entry into Canaan. And the hero is Joshua. And it's really important to understand that the book of Joshua has been influenced by the theology that's in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Joshua is portrayed as an ideal figure. He's portrayed like Moses. That's part of the, that's part of the narrative is to mm -hmm. show that, that as the Israelites moved into the promised land, which had been promised all the way back to Abraham and Sarai, uh, the, the person who's leading them has got the same authority and power as Moses, right? And so, Already then, we, we know that the book has a certain ideological, theological bent. We're trying to show that our entry into the land was divinely approved. We did what we were supposed to do, and we were led by a figure like Moses. Right? So that's part of the, the theology of, of the book. Um, it's a kind of an idealized view of Israel's past. So the book of Judges depicts a a much more messy picture. <laughs> and actually, if you read Joshua close, it's it's messier than you'd think. The, the initial chapters in Joshua, there's this entry of the Israelites as a mass army and they, they do some quick conquests. But if you read the whole book very carefully, you discover, well, did they or didn't they? How, how much did they not do? Well, they didn't do some, they didn't take care of some places. And uh, then when we throw archeology span into this, it gets really very messy too. <laughs> And the, font is helpful with, with some very helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. And then judges, I say judges has a much more messy picture. I've already given an example. The, the, the author's editors preserve three completely different reasons why there were Canaanites left in the land. And all you have to do is read the narrative to uh, to understand that it was a much more messy process of how a people called Israel entered, or did they emerge, or did they evolve? Were they how closely related to the Canaanites were they? Um, what? It's it's just a fascinating read, and the, there's some interesting theological stuff in it too. For example, in chapter one of Judges, it's describing the tribes, the tribes who did kind of what they were supposed to do, and it describes the tribe of Judah, and it says Yahweh was with Judah and helped them take the highlands but they couldn't take the lowlands because the people there had iron chariots. It's like, <laughs> God can help this much, but I, I'm with you. If they got bronze, if they got iron, I'm off. God is like, I'm off the clock. Right. But it's, 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 fa it's just fascinating. In, in some respects, 
the book of Judges is a non-idealized picture, right. a messy picture of tribes that sometimes get, get along and sometimes don't. They sometimes get together, sometimes they don't. The book of Joshua ends with the tribes all gathering at Shechem to have this great, mm-hmm. we, we promise to do it, whatever Yahweh says. In the book of Judges, it's like, no, these are like, these are like 12 little independent duchies trying to, trying to figure out whether to run their own show, help each other. How much should they get along with the Canaanites? Should they let Canaanites split be or not? And then you throw in the Samson stories, and you by that time, you've got the Philistines, these sea peoples who settled on the, the coast around 1200 BCE. And, and, and Samson seems to actually kind of be attracted to Philistines, especially women Philistines. He's, so he's, you know, he's going over there a lot. So anyway, the book of Judges, I mean, if you want a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what's in Judges, it's the struggles of tribal Israel before the monarchy. Okay. And the book of Judges ends with a very peculiar line where it says, in those days, uh, there, was no, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. <laughs> so, by the way, the, the Nevi'im pre- preserved two different traditions about the monarchy. The monarchy that arises was a great idea. The monarchy that arises was a disobedient and faithless idea, the worst idea that we ever had. Both of those traditions are side by side. The book of Judges ends with this tribal confederation in complete chaos and wishing for a king. So that's kind of a, a quick overview of the, the narratives of both. And there's lots of interesting and intriguing stories within. And and so um, one final thing is there's three scholarly theories about how Israel entered Canaan. And Font, Font goes through these quite well. There's the traditional conquest model that basically says the text of Joshua has got it right. Problem with the conquest model is that there's virtually no archaeological evidence to support it. And the textual evidence in other parts of Joshua and in the book of Judges simply is is contrary to it. Then there is an immigration model, uh, which is that groups of people who were ethnically related to the Canaanites were Semitic peoples, some of some of whom were connected to this group that was in Egypt, kind of slowly infiltrated in, and they assimilated in some places and they kept their identity in other places and it took it was a long process. And then there's a third model called a revolt model in which in which a group of people connected to the exodus from Egypt, we'll call it the Joshua group. The Joshua group enters Canaan, and already in Canaan, there are people that they are ethnically related to who are oppressed in the city-states by these various Canaanite kings, and the, the, the coming of this Joshua group begins sparking revolts in the cities. And there's some archaeological evidence to suggest that. Here's, here's the interesting thing about archaeology the hard evidence from archaeology would say it's until the time of, until, until the time of the monarchy it's impossible to distinguish israelite artifacts from canaanite artifacts all we've got is canaanite artifacts and the other thing is that archaeology shows that some of the stories that that uh, that are famous ones like the, the taking of jericho that er- actually archaeologically speaking there was nobody living in jericho uh end of the 13th century bce it was it was a village, maybe, yeah, but it didn't it was, have a wall around it. Right. There's no walled city there, and it hadn't been for for uh, for centuries at that point. So, but another interesting piece that 
keeps the debate alive is that in Hazor, which is further north, up in up, well, up towards Galilee, Galilee, yeah. Up, yeah, there it was. There was a walled city during this time period, and there is archaeological evidence that it was raised to the ground. So, so this kind of warfare was not uncommon in that time period, but nothing about Jericho would indicate that um, the description that we have of uh, Israel coming into the promised land and laying waste to Jericho could be historical. But we do know, do know that that kind of uh, wiping out a city did happen yeah. in that time, that it was a normal expected actually type of warfare. Um, in that time, it was their language and culture. If, you know, it's this is the language that they're, they're thinking in when they think about conquest, when they think about taking over a city. This is what people do. This is what people with power and and enough weapons and soldiers do to a place when they take it over. So, and if you're writing an idealized narrative, it makes a good story. It, right, 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 right. Yeah. and it's. It's absolute, right? It shows absolute power of one group over another or one people's God over another people's God. And something we haven't mentioned yet that's kind of important for this is that the context of these books coming together in the form that we're reading them is the Babylonian exile when different people, different Judean exiles are trying to figure out theologically, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Why, why are why? we in exile? Why did everything that we stood for, our land, why did we lose the it The temple all? was destroyed. We lost Jerusalem. We, the monarchy was destroyed. We lost everything. Why? And the book of Joshua gives one theological answer. We didn't do what we were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, according to Deuteronomy, we were supposed to wipe out everybody in the land and then be totally faithful to the covenant, have worship no other gods. We didn't do that. So we got what we deserved. That's, that's one answer. Um, that these these books are trying to to come up with. So that's the the context of the mm-hmm. the context of the final editors and first readers, we'll say. And we'll come back to um, what were some of the messages that the editors wanted the hearers to hear in their time. So they're writing, they're drawing together all of these stories, oral and written, and trying to put to get put them together in a way that will be meaningful to these people who are in exile with them. How do they know who this God is that seemingly has deserted them? And so what are some of the the pieces in both Joshua and Judges that is trying to give them an answer about where is God? So in that respect, we've got books here that are dealing with the perennial question. Why why did this evil befall us? So so that's... One way to keep the, the possible relevance of the books, at least they're struggling with the issue. So, yeah. so that's kind of a big overview. Um, so next would be the exploration. What are some of the questions that get raised in these texts, especially if we're trying to see whether or what the relevance for us might be? We suspect you have questions, Karen, because these books are, <laughs> they, they are a hot moral mess. <laughs> they are, um, as we read through them. And we don't really realize that. So I do a lot of questions came up, especially in reading Joshua judges was a little easier, even though it's equally horrific. It was easier in the sense that it didn't feel as um, absolute. 
right. as Joshua. So in Joshua, it is extremely militaristic. God is militaristic in Joshua. The book is militaristic. And as, as the font text points out, the religion becomes nationalistic in this time period. And we still see that today in Christianity. We hear it. Uh, we saw it on January 6th in what took place at the Capitol, this kind of nationalistic um, takeover right. of Christian uh, religion. And justified violence. Justified violence. Yes, it's it stays with us. And so I'm wondering why that story of Joshua has stayed with us as a strain that's still lived out rather than the more assimilative nature of the book of Judges. They're telling the same story. Yeah. But we have adopted the the more graphic one sure. as our identity, even in Christianity. I think so. And I, I think one reason for that goes back to what I, how I described the book of Joshua earlier. Joshua is depicted as an idealized figure. And it's much easier to make an I- idealized figure a hero. Um, I mean, for goodness sakes, we uh, on, on the square in Independence, not far from here where we live, there's a statue of Andrew Jackson. Mm. Um the historical Ouch. Andrew Jackson is a very, very problematic figure, but there he is in bronze, big and bold, and and uh, his his actual his actual deeds and the things he sponsored, like in his involvement in the the Trail of Tears of Cherokee and other tribes from the Southern United States, um, slavery, and so on. Um, we, we, when we know the historical Andrew Jackson, we would probably not want a statue of him on any square, actually. But we, we love idealized figures. And so the, the, the figure of Joshua in the book of Joshua is, is strong, courageous, faithful. He's just like Moses. He knows what's supposed to happen. Um, he's, he's like this perfect image of, of a, an obedient, obedient uh, leader, religious leader. And so he just... He, he, he makes good copy, <laughs> right? So that's it, it, the book of Judges, though. The book of Judges, because it's so much more of a patchwork, preserves all, all these judges are morally ambiguous figures. You know, for example, Gideon. If you read the text carefully, Gideon had another name, Jerubbaal. In other words, <laughs> he, he had a name connecting him to the god Baal, the very, the very god that was the nemesis, Yahweh's nemesis in Canaan. And so uh, was, he a, was he a faithful follower of Yahweh? Was he devoted to Baal? Was he... Did was, he, he, did he, was he a follower of Baal and then saw the light and then goes and cuts down the, the poles, the you know, where they worship? Was he, play, was he playing the field with both of them? Who, yeah, he like, wasn't really super sure. I mean, that's the yeah, other part about yeah. Gideon, right? Is, right. Well, yes, no, maybe, I don't know. So I think that it's, it's, much harder, it's much harder to read the book of Judges carefully and say, we want to be like these figures. <laughs> so, and this is just tossing out a possibility too, because you're right, for some Christians, these are the the pieces that they want to hang on to the Joshua power kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but other Christians really do go more with them. You know, we're messed up people and we're mm-hmm. always making mistakes and God is, is making a way. Um, and so I wonder if 
how grace is seen affects whether or not a denomination or a group of people um, is more likely to read Mm -hmm. Joshua as the dominant Mm -hmm. uh, way God works or, or instead of judges or the same way. And I would say the grace tendency would be more on the, the judges kind of reading of it. Um, But those who um, tend towards fundamentalism and having, again, absolute answers and being knowing absolutely that you have earned heaven. um, I think that's going to be more on the Joshua side of things. I mean, you can read Judges as if Yahweh has a, a much lower moral bar there for for service to Yahweh. And so that makes me actually kind of happy. More realistic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, and it, it brings up my next question, which is in Judges, I think more than in, in Joshua, um, because you're aware you're, I'm hopefully you're aware you're reading an idealized story about Joshua. But in Judges, as you read it, you it really comes to the forefront that the Israelites were struggling with this really tenuous balance between the covenant they made to Yahweh and the reality of living out that covenant in Canaan with all of their uh, non-Israelite neighbors. And so there is a lot of uh, interaction with the Canaanite culture and either whether it's political, you know, you go along to get along or whether it's they marry into for, um, for other tribal purposes, there's all of this happening. And so there is that kind of, yes, we're, we believe in Yahweh, but we're totally comfortable with visiting these other gods, right? right. And, the and there's element, a balance. Right. And the element there that makes this extra hard for the Israelites coming in is they've been wanderers, nomads for their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And now this is an agriculturally, more agriculturally focused Mm -hmm. area of the world. And if they're going to be settling down on a chunk of land and claiming it for theirs and maybe expanding it, um, they're going to have to figure out how to be farmers. And so how do you be farmers when you've never been from farmers, you know? And so the people in Palestine, they know how to be farmers and they know how their gods help them be farmers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of like you move into a neighborhood and you ask the farmer next to you, how do you make sure that your, your seeds germinate and you have a good harvest? And they say, well, first of all, you have to go visit the Baal priestess and, the, you know, have sex with right. her. And that'll get the gods going so that we'll have a good spring and there'll be fertility in the air. So it's like, okay. That's how we do it. (laughs) (laughs) Says the male farmer. Absolutely. (laughs) So um, I just want to, I want to make kind of a connection for our, our listeners. And that is that when we talk about Christianity, as we understand it now, Christianity has always borrowed from its culture. Absolutely. Uh, We're recording this on St. Patrick's Day, and that's a really good example of Christianity, of of, uh, who we know as St. Patrick, borrowing from the local culture in order to kind of um, persuade people to participate in uh, Christian religion. And so we shouldn't be so surprised by this borrowing of culture of the people of Israel, because that is a common human way of 
understanding your world, right? And right, yes. And I would yeah. say that that's part of the, the whole the idea of harem, H-E-R-E-M, um, which is that the idea of the putting people to the ban, putting, you know, wiping out a town. This this is the the warfare language of the space that they're coming into, into in a in a violent era, in a in a violent world. Um and so they're they're understanding if and this is this is something that's still true today. We have this tendency to say, well, God must be okay with the way things are. Because that's how the way that's how things are. And so God must be okay with that. You can see it um, in the U.S. as far as slavery is concerned. Uh, well, that's this is it's been like this for a long time. So God must be okay with it. And and when we're looking at the ways in which warfare is being described in Joshua, um, they're going in and they're using the methods and again the the cultural understanding of of how you how you succeed, how you have victory. It looks like this. It looks like wiping out everybody and everything mm-hmm. um, and not being contaminated by, you know, their, their, their idols of different gods and all of those kinds of things. So, so that that's helpful for us today too, because culturally we have the tendency to say, well, you know, well, maybe we live in a, in a sexist or a racist society but it's the way it is and and god must be okay with it because that's what is and so i think we still have that question to always be you know do we do things because they're comfortable or because this is the way things have always been um have we really said what what is it that we know about god that would help us see whether this is a, is actually helpful to the creation, to communities, to um, living in love. You know, if we don't ask those questions, we're doing the same thing they're doing, which is assuming, and nationalism comes in very strongly here, then we're just assuming that the way things are is the way things are supposed to be, and God's good with that. The, the, this, the thing you mentioned is religion, religion, religion is part a a human construct and so it it can't not be connected to culture right and we i think we mentioned this in one of our previous uh, podcasts in this series when we were talking about the 10 commandments and the law even even the decalogue and even the legal traditions in the torah are shaped by hittite covenant treaties and other kinds of legal stuff in fact some scholars think that the, those long list of rules about how you manage yourself in an agricultural society that in Exodus are, are made to come from Mount Sinai actually came from Canaanite culture, right? And that the, the Canaanites helped Israelites figure out how to live in this. And so I, I'm always suspicious when someone says they want to be countercultural because it's like, are you saying that you are a cultural and that you are completely outside <laughs> of culture? It's like, I think maybe what you want is you want to be counter imperial or mm-hmm or you know counter oppression but you can't possibly be countercultural as if you were somehow outside of culture because even the idea of being countercultural is because there's a new emerging culture inside of the old culture right. and so but you know so that we're getting an, a sense of how we're completely influenced I'm mean, not completely but we're majorly influenced by the culture around us 
and um, and and we're absorbing it whether we know it or not, um, and for good or for or not good. But but yeah, culture sometimes is the thing that helps us see more clearly, so that we can question some things. We can maybe say. Is this actually what God wants us to do? But on the other hand, so culture may get us to that point of saying, oh, my gosh, I never saw that before. I never saw the ways in which I am oppressing somebody else. And, oh, my goodness, is that what Jesus was talking about? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So sometimes culture gets us there, but sometimes culture can also blind us. Um, so so it, does, it can be either way. A couple more things on this, uh, on this very difficult aspect of the book of Joshua that Charmaine mentioned called Cherem in Hebrew, putting to the ban, or, or it's sometimes translated devoting to destruction. In other words, the idea here is every living thing in a city in this kind of warfare is exterminated and it has ritual and religious overtones. It's a sacrifice to the God. And we know that other peoples in the neighborhood did this. The Moabites did it for sure. And the Moabites are roughly ethnically related to the Israelites. And so that's the cultural piece here. Um, it's really problematic because here in our scriptures, we have a depiction of God commanding people to do what we would call ethnic cleansing or genocide. And so we have to we have to tread really carefully around these texts and make sure we understand them and not not misuse them. This is a don't try this at home and don't try it anywhere <laughs> uh, kind of moment in the Hebrew Bible. Um, some other things to know are that it's very clear from the book of Judges that the Israelites, if they did this, they didn't do it very often. Or very well. Or very well. <laughs> because, because there's Canaanites everywhere. And another thing is that... A lot of scholars say that the book of Joshua, actually in, in, in describing this, uh, is trying to do a wish list. This is what we should have done, right? If we had only gotten rid of the all of the Canaanite inhabitants, we would, we would never have become uh, disobedient to Yahweh, um, which is a highly problematic idea uh, on its own. But... Um, the 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 archaeological fact that they didn't do this much, if at all, doesn't absolve us of the problem that here it is in our sacred text. Okay. And a number of Hebrew Bible scholars like Michael Coogan have pointed out, actually, the European settlers who came to the colonies, they came with this. They were they were being freed from the, European oppression. They were crossing the water, Coogan the says, and they came with the idea that they would exterminate the inhabitants. And they got it from the book of Joshua and the book of Deuteronomy. And right. so, so we we have to we have to find we, we can't we can't remove it from the scriptures. We have to figure out what, what sense to make of it. And culturally speaking, you can say, well, welcome to the late Bronze Age. Um, the thing is, we're not all that morally advanced either. We <laughs> we can do this. We can do this with uh, with people people piloting drones from 10,000 miles away, dropping bombs on people. So we can do the same thing. So we're not all that much morally superior, but we have to, this is a place where we have to keep telling ourselves Christianity is found in the Bible, but not everything in the Bible is Christian. And we have to keep, as a Christian, we have to keep going back to the central figure of Jesus as the lens by which we 
we know what kind of basically what to do and what not to do. And Jewish tradition has a way of doing that too. So, right. Um, right. so anyway, it's, it's canon, but we have to, we, we, we have to uh, walk very slowly and carefully and not, and, and totally commit ourselves to living in the, by the best insights that Jesus has given us. And definitely to, to, we're not, we, we must not commit genocide. It's immoral. So. So remembering that this is how the people centuries later try to explain their situation is what we want to keep foremost in our mind with this. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And then to say further, uh, this is, this is not, this is not something subsequent readers of the Bible should want to do. Right. It's in term in terms of the best understandings of God we have, this is not one of them. Well, I think even in the restoration tradition, we can look back and go, okay, that's not something we want to carry forward. <laughs> so we can, we can see that in our own, right, our, our own kind of denominational history. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do have another question, but we need to talk about Samson first. So I'm going to turn it, turn it back to, to you guys to carry on with your uh, explanation. So, well, you want to talk about Samson right now? Well, yeah, because um, it, it kind of ties into my question about Bible stories. So if you let's okay, talk about it. Go, go for it. it. Yeah. So uh, the story of Samson um, out of Judges, I think it's the 14th, 15th and 16th chapters of mm -hmm. uh, Judges. So for fun reading listeners, you want to turn to that. Um, it's awful. So I remember reading a Bible stories when I was a kid. You learn about Samson and and Delilah, that's one of the stories included. But when you actually sit down and read those three chapters, a whole different picture appears. And so um, Samson is portrayed as a hero. And you said earlier, was he really heroic? And if you really read that, it's like, no. He seems to be a person that has some anger management issues. Um, some sexual behavior issues. It's an impulse control problem. <laughs> Real impulse control. And um, for, for a person who was consecrated to God at birth, his behavior is contrary to what we would understand to be a person consecrated to God. So why is this in there? Why do we have this three-chapter story of Samson? Well, so this is again, this is folklore, and it's very likely these these kinds of stories that are in the Book of Judges were remembered locally. These were local heroes, and and so Samson's claim to fame is that in the in the end he pulled he pulled down a temple on pagan Philistines and himself and himself. Um, so. In some respects, he's no better or worse than David, King David. Um, if if you want if you want to take a grace view here, um, <laughs> God seems to keep working with Samson in spite of all of Samson's worst traits, and he's got a lot of them. It's a really long resume of really bad <laughs> traits, um, and yet and yet this call to be a Nazarite, this de being devoted to God. God stays faithful to it, to that call in Samson, in spite of Samson's mess ups. Now, 
if I'm reading the story in the Babylonian exile, and one of the stories I've been hearing is that the reason we're in exile is because we messed up and this is punishment. The story of Samson is an, a counter story. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we may have, but God's still with us because if God was still with Samson, God could still be with us. In other words, the story, sometimes you have to ask the question, how did the story function for the hearers? And so I can I can imagine the, the story of Samson functioning for hearers in the exile as maybe God is still with us. Because look what look, look <laughs> what God was able to do even with Samson. We're not, we're not possibly oh. screwed up as Samson. <laughs> so so in other words, the, the, the story might have functioned as a grace story for them as a way of saying, whatever we did, God's still faithful to us as a covenant people. And we can at least count on that. However, however things go from here. So I don't know. So, I mean, so we, we see that in a lot of stories in, in the Hebrew scriptures, though. Yeah. Where yeah. What we take as the as the message of why it's in there is not at all what the original hearers of this story were taking from it. Because, because we don't have their experiences. Right, right. We're we're not reading it through the lens that that their desperation was right through. Right. So if I look at it through my lens and I want to take a grace perspective on it, Mm -hmm. I might see the struggle of someone trying to navigate their own humanity with their. Um, call or connection um, with God so that I mean you can find that I'll be I'll extend grace in this setting (laughs) even though even though reading it um, in the middle of the me too movement and the the kind of cancel culture in which we're living in right now makes any reading of some of these stories just suspect um, from our current cultural perspective. So putting that aside is the hardest thing to do when reading the Old Testament. No, and in some ways, this is a continuation of a theme with Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai, um, where Abraham isn't really nearly as faithful as later New Testament writers want to say, oh, well, Abraham is our example of what it means to be faithful. Well, so why did he say his wife was his sister to save his own skin twice? You know, I mean, it's like, really? So it's, this is a theme that I, I love about the Old Testament is that looking honestly at, um, at human tendencies and not, and not wincing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of humanity there to look at. There that it certainly true. is. Yeah. Some, some of these stories give us an opportunity <laughs> to to practice kind of retroactively let let whoever's without sin cast the first stone <laughs> right right keep that in mind the entire reading <laughs> right. uh, you, so, you read some of these books and you're constantly reaching into your pouch for stones here and it's like oh, oh, so, stop so we may find that when we are disturbed by some of these stories and we've maybe talked about this before is that we may have a latent um literalism mm. that we're saying well the stories should be shiny and fresh and and pure that are in the bible and you know that's a kind of literalism that's that's what we're saying well the bible should say all of these wonderful things about what it what it looks like and feels like to follow god and and um but th- that's that's a kind of literalism that we're carrying around mm-hmm. rather than saying okay these reveal you know 
the underside of human experience and and maybe it's not about the human experience here maybe it's trying to point to something about the nature of god rather than about mm. what it means to follow god and to do it right so so we um we have a an issue then when we try to teach bible stories because we do try to teach the um sanitized and uh, uh, gentle and the sun is shining and God is love version of all of these stories to our children. And we end up propagating that kind of lens mm-hmm. with scripture. Yeah. No, the Noah story we teach about the ark and the animals and the rainbow. And we don't teach the what happened after, which um, our readers should definitely check out. I mean, our <laughs> listeners should definitely check out. Or we we teach about Samson, but we don't really. We teach little bits of pieces of Bible story that um, that aren't helping us take this broader perspective with Scripture. So what what do we say to parents who are trying to teach Scripture to children in a way to help them understand? but not inadvertently teach them to be literalists. Yep. Yep. So there's a few things. And one would be, you know, what if we read these stories to say, you know, this story tells us some things about um, the struggles that human beings have. And that sometimes people aren't very nice. And sometimes they make, they're willfully making decisions that will hurt themselves and other people and, and go against what they believe God wants them to do. But look, and I'm using here mostly judges, but also Abraham's story and eventually next time David's story. Um, but to be honest about the characters that are there and to say, you know, um, we sometimes do those things too. You know, within us, there might be that uh, impulse, lack of impulse control that that Samson is illustrating. Um, But we could still do some things Mm -hmm. for God. Um, We don't have to be, you know, pure as the driven snow in order to be loved by God, to be called by God, to respond to God. And keep coming back to God and back to God and back to God. I mean, how how would that? That's pretty good news for kids, I think. Um, that's good, hopeful news for kids going through all of the things that kids <laughs> but, go through. But then one of the things parents have to realize is that sometimes they want to use the, the Bible stories to control their children's behavior. <laughs> Just the same as with the Santa story you know, using it to control their children's behavior when in actuality it may be denying the reality of human experience and then putting shame on kids because they aren't this idealized um, David or Abraham or Mm -hmm. the, the excised very short story of Samson when there's way more happening there. Right. So, I mean, the only thing I can add to what Charmaine's observed, which I think is really helpful with this, is that moral formation in children is a long, slow process. And one of the things we have to be careful of is give up the default setting view 
the, the, the you know, it's a default setting view in American religious culture that somehow the Bible is a magic book. And if you just read it, you'll you'll be a better person. No, you you if you don't use the Bible carefully, you could become an absolutely horrible person, right? So in other words, you you can't just the mere fact of reading Bible stories does not have magic power that makes people into decent people. It takes a community. It takes it takes learning how to navigate your way through stories. It takes uh, constant moral experience through parents and 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 peers. You, you, it takes a lot of reflection and care. And you can't just, you know, read read a read a couple of sanitized children's Bible stories to kids at night and expect that somehow they're going to be be become angels, right? It's like no, that does not, that's not how it works. So there's a view of the Bible behind that that I think is dangerous to us. And the other part is reading scripture in community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no community is perfect or easy or without struggles and challenges. And so, you know, reading some of these passages and saying, you know, recognizing that, you know, there may be this tendency in some people in our congregation to be at war with each other and to use all means available to them to wipe out the other, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's good. And to, to be able to say, okay, so how do we invite God into this? You know, that's what happens in Judges. They they turn away from from God and then they get oppressed by the the neighboring king and then they call out to God and God helps them get recentered. Um so how how I mean so there's there's all kinds of ways that reading this in community, letting the the um the wealth of the long tradition of Christianity um you know, these, these aren't plucked out, you know, these aren't just plucked out as unconnected to anything else. They're really connected. They're really connected to the hard decision to, to choose again and again and again to, to follow Jesus or to, to listen to God or to be open to the spirit. And so, yeah, that's, that would be another element. Let the community help us. Yeah interpret these passages and then kind of one other thing is that it's really good to take the view from thirty thousand feet and remember if we can that the people of israel were pretty much for most of their history a threatened highly vulnerable minority group in the near east Mm -hmm. occupying a strategic piece of land that all the all the big empire kids on the block wanted that so some of the stories in Judges, for as violent and as cruel as they are, they're also liberation stories. They're also they're also about uh, pushing back against oppressors, and, and so there's there is a liberative element in some of the stories here. That's a little mm-hmm. a little harder for you know we, we want to be careful not to justify anything we want as liberation. But I mean there's <laughs> there's there's still a sense in these stories that uh, there was a a quest for justice, and there may be better ways to quest for justice in our time, but. That was an underlying, there was an underlying element there of unjust treatment. And, uh, and that God is with and for the oppressed. Right. I mean, that's, that's another piece. Yeah. So some well, other, just some different things to put in the pot. I think that does come out in a reading of Judges. You do get the idea that these were smaller communities trying to figure out, mm-hmm. again, how they got in the situation they got into, and then they used the means they understood in their time and culture to overcome that. And so it, it does have some kind of redemptive cycle in yes. judges. 
that that comes a little clearer to that. So for the Bible study part of this, just the last little bit, we've taken three of these themes and simply um, rather than unfolding one story and going deeper into one story, we've taken three themes and just presented a question that could be a, a question for discussion. It might even be a kind of question you know, like at a, a prayer time, you know, prayer service kind of time where you do some re- inner reflection and maybe sharing. So um, we've got th- mm-hmm. three. So Tony's going to do the first. So even for the ideological tone of jo- the book of Joshua, there's some important, important, important stories there and in Judges. So the importance in Joshua and Judge- Judges of stories like Rahab and Jael that push back against the idea that the only good Canaanite is a dead Canaanite. That's a major theme in Deuteronomy and Joshua. It's actually amazing that the editors of these books preserve these stories. The, the, The Rahab story is directly counter to much of the whole thrust of the book of Joshua. Here is a Canaanite prostitute who's, who's like, Hey, I want to follow Yahweh too. And, uh, you help me, I'll help you. And they make a covenant. And so that's quite, quite amazing. Uh, you know, the, this, this Deuteronomistic idea that if we'd only you know, completely separated ourselves from those others, we'd be okay. But wait, <laughs> among our own heroes are many who would have been seen as other. Rahab, Jael, again, it's, again and again uh, in, in uh, the Nevi'im, that, that's that strong minor minor key keeps coming back to sound that no, we have to be careful how we do that. So a question that comes out of this is when has someone commonly thought of as other, and you can take that to mean outside of God's people, but you can go a lot of ways with that, been the one who drew me closer to God. Right? Sometimes it's not the ones on the inside who do, it's the ones quote unquote on the outside, the, the other that awaken uh, a yearning for God in us. So that's a place you could go with the, the Rahab story. All right. So then the uh, second place is reminding ourselves of who we are with God or in God. And <clears throat> this is a, the covenant renewal that's at almost at the end of Joshua. And then we'll see it again later in Samuel or first Kings. No, anyhow, <laughs> It's it's next time, (laughs) whatever that is. But this is just a a little piece of it with a little bit of my commentary in it. So so then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to to Shechem. And Shechem um, is the place where when God said, you know, go ahead and leave Haran and I'm going to take you somewhere. And they stop around Shechem and God says to Abram, this is the land you see in front of you is the land that I'm promising to you. And so Abraham built an altar there. And so here in Joshua, um, all the the tribes are brought back to Shechem and they have an opportunity to covenant again with God. And um, so they're summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they present themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, our, your ancestors. And then there's a whole recalling of the story 
they're reminded of their story and uh, takes them through the many chapters of their story as people up to now. And then, so now therefore revere the Lord and serve God in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And so uh, that brought to mind for us the, the question, what are places or experiences you need to revisit regularly to remind you who you are in God? There's so many times in our lives and in the ups and downs and in the last year and the struggles that have been part of it um, more for some than others. When we're in those times that are hard, what experiences or places do we need to revisit to remind us of who we are in God? So it's another, another question that can come out of um, listening to their story and seeing how uh, they try to stay connected with God. And then the, the last one is, you know, again, going back to those editors of, um, of the prophets, this whole set of sets of writings that we're going to be looking at. What did they want their people to know as they were in exile, as they were saying, oh my gosh, where is God? We've lost everything. And we're in danger of losing our identity. We've lost our land. We've lost our families. We've lost our sense of an, as a nation, has God rejected us? And their answer, the editors that pulled together these writings that we know as the prophets, part of their answer is God will not and has not abandoned us. Look at our story, especially Judges. And I just put in here a little bit of this, this recurring rhythm in Judges. Uh, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. And so then, then they were given over into King Cushan Rishathaim. Yeah, so <laughs> him. And the Israelites served him for eight years, but then they cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, he became their, their judge and uh, led by God frees them from being oppressed. And then a little couple, just a few verses later, <laughs> the Israelites <laughs> again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened uh, King Eglon of Moab and put them into, and, you know, they're oppressed by him and then raises, then they, they cry out and Ehud is brought as a deliverer. Uh, a left-handed man. I had to leave that in there because I'm left-handed <laughs> <laughs> and it is important to the storyline. But, um, and then after Ehud had freed them from the King of Moab, and then they had rest for 80 years. And then again, next chapter, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of, of Canaan who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera. And then we go into the story of, so this is a time when Deborah is the judge and also the military leader. And she's, she's also singing. And this is her song. This is the place where Tony was talking about her song showing up um, and, and God's faithfulness to them. So uh, the question here, 
I think is one that many of us can relate to. When has God heard my cries and sent someone to help me find a way forward with God? And, you know, that's, that's that on that rhythm throughout Judges, that God keeps hearing us and keeps finding a way for us to move forward with God. Um, even when we willfully, like Samson, you know, decide that whatever, whatever he's wanting is what he should have. So even in our own impulse control moments or anger management <laughs> moments or all of the other humanities that we exhibit on a daily basis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting places to go. So those are, are helpful um, to take us from the, the horror of the beginning of reading through Joshua and then trying to hear not only what the original hearers of these would have taken from the text, but also how we can look at them and find value for them in our own discipleship, which, as you so lovingly said, is a long journey and formation, <laughs> not as easy as reading some Bible stories. So any last thoughts or comments before we close out this episode of Hebrew? I, I have one. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, e it's easy to be rather harsh and judgmental towards these texts, but all I have to do is look at contemporary American life, and I might be willing to say the Bronze Age is way closer than you think. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Charmaine, any last comment from you? Um, keep looking to the loving God that many of these texts are pointing to. Some of them are pointing to an angry and destructive God, but keep noting that that's not the only image of God that's there. Um, and this Old Testament version of grace is pretty strong. So keep, keep looking for it. I think you'll be surprised how often you might find it. When I'm guilty, I tend to look at God as not understanding and angry as well. So <laughs> that's always that. that <laughs> includes, to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. But keep looking too, to see what else is there. See what's there. So um, next time we meet for Hebrew, we're going to look at the story of uh, David and the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, and even David and Bathsheba. And so we'll tentatively call that our episode on entitlement, privilege, and accountability in the story of uh, David. And we hope you'll join us for that, for episode six of Hebrew. So just for you, Tony, um, Part of our closing words today are from the 1970s rock musician, Edgar Winter. So think back into your memory of the Edgar Winter band, Long White Hair. Okay, yeah. I'm there. <laughs> okay. And here's from Edgar Winter. The mountain is high, the valley is low, and you're confused on which way to go. So I've come here to give you a hand and lead you into the promised land. So come on and take a free ride. Ah. So everyone 50 or over, that was also for you. And on a more serious note from the professor of alternative medicine, I think San Francisco. 
Cisco University. I could be wrong on the university, so don't take that for gospel. But her name is Rachel Naomi Remen. And she says, few of us will reach our promised land in a day. But perhaps the most important part of the story is that God does not delegate this task. Whenever anyone moves toward freedom, God is there. Mm. So on that note, until next time, I'm Karen Peter with Tony and Charmaine Shavala-Smith. This has been Hebrew, part of the Project Zion podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.